welcome to this episode of the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. This episode we're discussing goal setting, organisation and training, all key parts of undertaking a PhD in any field. Later in the episode we speak to Dr Tom Rusbridge, postgraduate research advisor at UEL, and he speaks to us about his role in supporting postgraduate researchers, but also his experience of planning and undertaking training as part of his own PhD. My name's Chloe, I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Bath and my research explores the relationships between cannabis, tobacco and mental health. This week as part of my PhD, I've been working on making some edits to a meta-analysis protocol, um, just trying to get it ready for pre-registration. Here with me this week are Ayan and Marva, if you guys would like to introduce yourselves. Um, thanks, Ian. <laughs> uh, my name is Marve uh, and I am a third year PhD student at the University of Exeter and my PhD is focusing on looking at repetitive negative thinking patterns as risk factors and treatment targets in alcohol use disorders. Um, this week uh, for my PhD I've been working on some revisions for a paper that I've submitted so that's what I've been up to. Thank you. Um, my name is Ayan. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Surrey. I'm looking at chat, which is a plant um, that people chew in East Africa and the Middle East. I'm looking to see what effects it has on cognition. And this week, I've actually been reviewing papers for a meta-analysis that I'm doing, but also preparing my year plan on thesis input so basically i've just got a bunch of writing to do for the next nine months thanks for joining us both so as i mentioned this episode is focused on goal setting organization and training um and i thought we could kick things off today by just chatting about our experiences of applying these skills uh so goal setting and organization during our phds um Obviously, as a first year student, still very much getting to grips with these skills in a PhD setting, um, finding that they're very much like underlying factors in everything you're doing. So whether that's writing a protocol or putting together a presentation for a talk, it's these things which help you manage that balancing act um, and help you pull together all these different streams of of work that you're engaged in. Um, But what about you? What have, have your experiences been like? I think for me, um, in my first year, um, my supervisor suggested I do a Gantt chart and it was just kind of a spreadsheet thinking about what I wanted to achieve each year of my PhD. And that kind of really helped me in understanding timelines um, and trying to be realistic with what I had to do in order to achieve certain milestones. Um, what also helped was speaking with other PhD students who were in their second and third year, just to kind of gauge where they were at in terms of their own PhD journey and how long it taken them to do specific tasks. So I think for me off the bat, it's understanding and having like a bigger picture of what am I looking to achieve? How am I going to do it? And what timeline do I have to work with? Mm, I think that's really useful. I don't know. Are they called Gantt charts or ja- Jant charts. I always get it wrong. Is it Gantt charts? Anyway, um, I think I think they're really good because you get a good overview of the whole PhD. But I also want to say I haven't. I definitely haven't fully sticked to mine. <laughs> like things have changed so massively since 
um, I've done that in the first year. But I think it's useful to like give you a general overview of the whole PhD. But like in terms of day to day and maybe like the weekly and monthly planning, you need something a bit more fine tuned, I guess. And maybe with something as big as a Gantt chart, you need to be aware that things can change throughout the PhD and maybe just not see it as something um, so strict um, um, to compare yourself against. Yeah. I actually found, because um, when I submitted for my project funding, I needed to do a Gantt chart for the whole PhD. But one of the first things I did was just chopped off the last two and a half years and just focused on the first six months. So recreated it because I just couldn't think about <laughs> the whole three years in one go. So mm. that's something I actually did find quite helpful is like, OK, don't let's not worry about that too much right now. Let's actually just bring it back to the next six months because a Gantt chart is only as... Um, accurate as the stuff you put into it isn't it so yeah um, it, I think it's better sometimes to just reel it in a little bit and just start and go bit by bit yeah I think that's so right because also especially in the earlier stages what you do now is going to affect what you what you do next so it's kind of hard to predict exactly what you might be doing like you might have an idea but like you know the first six months are really going to be quite important in terms of what you do with the rest of it so not to like put too much pressure on you but (laughs) um yeah for me I had to see what exactly I was trying to achieve and if it was feasible um but I also made sure within the Gantt chart which I do review every three to six months um and I do keep the shorter timelines as well um for major milestones but for me it was more or less looking at having some flexibility within the timeline as well. Mm. Um, What I hadn't anticipated was how long (laughs) it was going to take me to do data analysis. Or as you guys have said, certain things don't quite work out. Mm. Um, So during my trips and and collecting data in Ethiopia, certain aspects of it wasn't working out. Having that plan B, but also having that flexibility within your timeline to be able to continue with what you're trying to achieve. Um, So... Gun charts sometimes work, maybe not for everyone, but at least to get an overview of what you want to achieve. Yeah, I feel like there's certain things in academia we just love, and I, I think Gantt charts is probably one of them. <laughs> and I guess it's it's one thing, isn't it, to to plan those bigger things, but then you also have to organise week by week and day by day as well. Mm. So um, one of the things that I found is juggling things not to do with the PhD so um, for example if you're involved in marking or if you're helping out on a little bit of supervision how do you guys go about that? Um, I think it is difficult for me I find that like let's say if I have teaching I try to group it in one day rather than like spread across the whole week because for me I personally prefer to like focus on a task for longer time rather than like doing two hours here two hours there so like if I'm doing extra other things I try to like group them together so they don't distract me on other days um so that's kind of my general um tip about doing it but then I guess if you have also have those like little bits of time between things you need to choose um you know, if you've got an hour between teaching and another teaching, don't plan to write in that hour, you know, you're not going to be able to do that, you know, maybe just say, I'm going to read one article, or if you've got some admin to do, um, so it's kind of matching the time to the tasks as well, that's what I would say, what about you, Ayan? 
I tend to keep a to-do list. I use apps for that. So it kind of looking at each week what tasks I have to complete and then setting aside tasks for today, tasks that will take the whole week and doing some time mm-hmm. blocking. So for example, Wednesdays for me are like my you know hardcore writing days. So I block out that whole day um where I do writing and I have some breaks in between that. Um but no admin work. But then the time blocking also allows you to focus on mm-hmm. one specific task as well. So similar to, you know, if you're teaching and you've got an hour in between as you said, doing some admin work. But I put that within the calendar, but also as part of my overview of what I have to achieve for that week. Mm. So what about you, Chloe? <laughs> How are you getting on? <laughs> um I find the designating day thing really helpful. So I try and keep my meetings to one end of the week because um just the online meetings yeah. I do find them really draining. So if I know that I've got those on a certain day then I try and not schedule in like a cognitively quite heavy task. One of the things I I like doing is like putting reading at like mm. one end of the day. I think it might be our very own podcast member Dan that mentioned this before but putting something in in the evening that you find like more pleasant or like find it more relaxing to do like reading journal articles and making notes and putting it when you know that you have a little bit less brain energy I find that a quite a good way of designating task is how much energy and how much brain power is that actually going to yeah, take me Yeah I think that's a really good tip and this is something actually that I've mentioned when I was doing a blog for the um, blog about like managing productivity. It's sort of about um, balancing your motivation and energy levels to the tasks that you're going to do, right? Like if you're really tired on a Friday afternoon, you're probably not going to be writing uh, very well anyway. So can you do a podcast instead? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, um, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, I tend to find that I'm more productive in the morning, early in the morning Same. and late at night. <laughs> Not so. Um, so the heavier <laughs> so the heavier tasks like the writing or the reading, I kind of leave for those specific time blocks. I definitely get a lunchtime lull. <laughs> that middle of the day for me is just gone. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, when I was doing my undergrad dissertation, like I try and get up like so early that I would get in as many hours before lunchtime because I just knew that I wasn't going to be very productive after I had lunch so yeah I think it's really important to like know when you're most productive maybe some people work better after lunch I don't know or they work better in the evenings but certainly not me so you know it's being mindful of those as well. Ayan you mentioned you used an app um, to organize some of your tasks what kind of apps do you use? I use a couple at the moment. <laughs> I use uh, Momentum, which you can kind of um, have it as an extension on Google. So as soon as I open up the internet, I've got my to-do tasks on there. And usually what I'm focusing on that day, I kind of put it in. So whenever I go into Google, if I'm looking to kind of <laughs> procrastinate and do other stuff, it kind of reminds me <laughs> that I'm supposed to be on task. The other one is Notion. And I really like using that app. It's free. You can download it onto your, you know, you know, device and and laptop, and it allows me to kind of have that bigger overview of all the major milestones that I have. But within that, I can narrow it down to what I'm doing this week, today, or you know, next week as well. Um, and once you've actually a- accomplished and finished a task, you can move it down a pipeline 
to the done mm. section, which feels really good. <laughs> <laughs> so really how do good. you use Notion? Because I have heard of this in a different context, but I just thought it looks so complicated. Can you tell us a little bit about like, how do you actually use it? And do you have templates and stuff? Um, I don't, well, there's a video that comes with it that kind of goes through what is involved within Notion. But for me, it's almost like having, you know, those sticky notes that you get on your devices, but it's on Google. So Mm. there's a a beautiful background image and then the to-do list of what you're supposed to be focusing on that day. Um, And you set that. And again, it's almost like a checklist. Once you've done, you can click it off. So whenever I log on, to my to the internet and i go on to google that's the first page that comes up for me because i'm already signed in it's an extension and then i kind of type in what i'm focusing on today Mm. um so it could be a number of things or a couple of things but until it's done that to-do list will stay there (laughs) um so my to-do list for this week is still up like we haven't mentioned which when I came back to do my master's last year felt like it had been a secret everyone was keeping from me is a uh, reference management software um, <laughs> for, for keeping oh, yes. track of all your reading so I don't know if it just wasn't a thing when I did my undergrad but for the last year absolutely you know saved my dissertation having that kind of log of all your reading um I don't want to turn it into a reference management software battle which often happens <laughs> for me personally I use Mendeley uh, and find oh, the desktop importer really good um just the fact you just click on a button and you know it's gone and it's archived in the right place because previously I used to use just folders on my desktop and it was horrendous and I I think they're still there they're all just shoved in the recycling bin um what about you guys what kind of things do you do to manage your reading and, and keep track of everything I think actually that's a really good point you mentioned so actually I've been using EndNote so there is a reference management um, software war there <laughs> and the only reason for that is um I was using Mendeley but it didn't prove to be very helpful for sharing your library with other people so in case you're collaborating with other people uh, which I first started using EndNote for that so um, EndNote is actually quite good at doing that um, so you can share your library with others um, to do like a systematic review for example Um, so I do that for like you know uh, containing the references but I also used to use OneNote for taking notes on readings um, and you have like these like notebooks and then you can have like different chapters and different pages within that. So I found a quite helpful way of organizing, um, you know, what I was taking notes on. It could be something like, um, I don't know, one part of the, it could be something about my literature review or like my papers. So I could sort of have different sections for each topic and then you can sort of organize the papers that way. So that's what I found helpful so far. So I use Mendeley and Zotoro. Zotoro for when I'm collaborating with people. Because you're right, I find it a struggle to kind of be being able to share um, literature and, and articles with collaborators. Um, but I also use Notion for note-taking and referencing as well. So what I tend to do with Notion is a bit like OneNote. You can open up a document and just make some notes on a literature that you're reading and it'll just store it there and I'll be able to open it up in any of my other devices. But yeah, um, you ha- I think the referencing management is really, really important. 
if you're starting your PhD, if you're undergraduate, it is a good not kept secret anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not well kept secret anymore, but yeah, it's it's very good to use. Before we talk about training, do you have any final tips for someone just starting? Um, anything that really helped you get through your PhD so far that we haven't covered? Um, back to um, managing folders and files <laughs> and documents. Um, I kind of found that in the first year, I was giddy happy downloading everything in terms of articles um, and not being able to keep a track of where I'm keeping certain documents. So as part of actually my ethics, I had to do data management and that looks specifically at the way that we code and, and use abbreviations and filing our work and that's been really really good i also keep a word document to kind of correspond and let me remember what the codes meant and in each year where i stored certain documents um so you don't lose anything mm. and i think the key in being organized when it comes to your filing and, and you know work that you've written up is to back it up i was gonna <laughs> like, say that <laughs> my god back it up even with a great filing system that i have i've lost stuff once my computer crashed so you have to back it up so yeah that's a really good point <laughs> what about you marva any top tips um i think i was just thinking first of all everything takes longer than you think it will take and also the fact that things will definitely change during the phd like it would be weird if something didn't if if everything went your way it would be a bit strange <laughs> and um yeah so like don't it's more about being prepared for those changes and being able to adapt to those changes and like obviously have your plans but like don't be super attached to them if things don't go as you wanted to um because you know life or a pandemic gets in the way and you know you can't control that there's a lot of things that happen during the PhD that you can't control so have plans but be open to them changing slightly so having some flexibility within your yeah. timeline yeah exactly that, that really 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 helps I think that's one of the advice that someone gave me in my second year um, just to kind of understand that certain things are not going to go to plan mm -hmm. as a as a year was coming into it um so just to make sure that i have some time allocated in case i need to do additional writing or additional analysis whatever it may be um and that meant maybe taking off a few of my milestones um so that it became more realistic in being able to achieve it mm. um, and i think that conversation was needed can i just add um also maybe like booking in breaks because it's great okay you plan all these all these things in and it looks like it's gonna fit but if you haven't sort of like taught about the breaks and giving yourself a bit of a break then you're just going to be like rushing from one thing to the other which means you're probably not going to be as productive um at doing everything back to back so you know having a bit of a downtime and thinking about those breaks as well is really important I usually try to have a break during Ramadan. Yeah. Because we're going to be fasting. It's going to be long days. Who's going to want to be doing any type of data collection analysis when I haven't had food <laughs> ah. for like, I don't know, 18 hours or whatever it may be. So, yeah, you're right. Working in breaks is really important. One last thing I'd like to add in um, is if you're finding it overwhelming 
you know, wherever you are in your PhD and you're struggling to organise, don't worry. Like that's part of the process of going through the PhD is that you can pick up those skills and you're there to learn them. Mm -hmm. And I think if a PhD, you know, prepares you for nothing else, which of course it does, it prepares you to project manage and it prepares you to be in charge of that project. And there will be training opportunities and ways to learn how to do it better as part of it, which segue (laughs) is something else that I thought it would be really good to talk about today is about training as part of your PhD, because as well as, you know, all the writing and all the data collection, everything you're going to be doing, training is something else that is part of doing it. Um, and planning it in and making time for it is really important. So what kind of training experiences have you guys had as part of your PhD? Um, How did they relate? You know, how did you work out what things you really needed? Um, I think when I first started my PhD, I just thought, oh, I need to get training in everything I find interesting. But you need to remember that like the training needs to match what you're doing with your PhD. Um, And also the training doesn't have to be like I was kind of I was doing this experience sampling study and I was like, well, I have to get the training now to analyze the data. But my supervisor was like, focus on collecting the data now and you'll get the training when you're actually analyzing the data. So it it might be that you're going to be doing something in your PhD but you don't need to do the training immediately then. You just kind of do it close to the time. So I think that's kind of the mistake I was making in my first year, just thinking, I need to get all the training right now, um, whatever the relevance it is to my PhD. So that's one thing I would say in terms of my experiences um, of training. Well, for me, um, I kind of looked at it slightly different. I kind of thought about what do I need um, in order to actually get this project up and running and and, and done in the best possible way for my research. Um, I also looked at the gaps that I had in my own knowledge Mm. and skills, and that was a priority for me. So I tried to seek training that would benefit my project or benefit me professionally to be able to do this in the best way. Um, So that meant looking within the department, you know, within the university, doctoral college, but also reaching out to societies and different universities to see if they would be willing to allow me to sit on, onto a course. Um, I always tried to go down the free route <laughs> and that was possible sometimes, but, but not all the time. Um, but yeah, and now with this pandemic, there's just so much training out there that is free. Um, Mm. Just going through Twitter and seeing all the different workshops and seminars. I've actually been learning R through a university in America for free. Wow, that's amazing. Just by reaching out to, you know, the moderators and seeing if they'll allow me to attend the course. So I think if you don't ask, you don't get. But looking for something that will benefit you and your project primarily is the key thing to go for. Mm, I think that's a really good point and it kind of reminded me obviously we've talked about like data analysis skills and stuff and people tend to focus on first of all people might tend to focus on those sort of like hard skills I suppose but like other things around it are quite important as well you know like project management and communication um what else is out there um I don't know like how to write articles and things like that so those kind of things how to get published how to get published yeah how to write for publication how to reply to comments on your paper um yeah just also thinking about these perhaps more transferable skills as well um and there 
usually those kind of training I don't know about you but they're usually available through doctoral colleges at universities so I would sort of recommend people checking that out um yeah any other points about training any tips that you would give to anyone I was just gonna say also one thing that people sort of might think is that well basically don't feel guilty about the time that you dedicate into training that's sort of a part of your PhD sometimes you're like oh but I need to be doing my work or whatever I've got other things to do but you know training is a is an official part of the PhD so as long as as it's related to what you're doing and it's going to help your project in some way um, you know do dedicate that time to it. I think also thinking about what skills or knowledge or training you would need at different stages Mm. Um, not to try and do it all at once but just kind of like Know, spreading it out based on what you're accomplishing each year yeah um and not being afraid to ask for a specific training if you have that need for it and if it's relevant for you be it through your supervisor department or the university so yeah go for it yeah that's a really good point and i was just gonna say you know if you it's never too late to start organizing things you know if you're listening and you're like oh I'm in my second year or third year like you've still got a while to go um it's always worth if you found something that might work better um just get on with it you know if you haven't used reference management software so far just start now you know don't put it off if you heard about it now there's always um it's never too late basically to start organizing things I am here today with Dr. Tom Rushbridge, who is the Postgraduate Research Advisor at the University of East London. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. We're very glad to have you here. So we are talking in our podcast today about goal setting, organisation and training as part of undertaking a PhD. I'm going to talk to you mainly today about the the training aspect, what that involves, what that looks like. So um, maybe just to kick things off, what does your role as postgraduate research advisor kind of entail? So I've got a I've got a really lovely role because I get to work with uh, PGRs across the full the full gamut of subjects that we cover uh, at East London. So that might mean um, spending some time chatting with the bioscientists or the sports scientists, but also with our um, researchers in business and law or the fine artists. Um, and really, it's about providing development and support activity for anybody undertaking uh, a doctoral program, writing a thesis, conducting research uh, at various stages uh, in their projects as well. So it's a, it's a mix of scheduling, delivering, designing, putting on workshops, having one-to-one conversations with people, anything I can do to help. When I go and I introduce myself at inductions, my normal line is, I'm here to help, but you need to let me know how. That's my general general approach. Oh, you sound like a fantastic person to know when you're starting your PhD. (laughs) Very kind of you to say. (laughs) So you mentioned that lots of different aspects of doing a PhD from kind of the specific tasks of writing your thesis to collecting research data. And I guess that kind of links into with the broad variety of training opportunities, doesn't it, that you need to think about as part of doing a PhD, particularly when you're starting out. How does planning in training, how how does deciding um, what training you need come about? It's um, it's a really tricky process. And when I was working on my PhD, it's a process that I, I really, really 
hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to be honest with that. But the, we sat down in a, a big induction, the Arts and Humanities uh, Department at Sheffield, and we were presented with the training needs analysis form. And we had to fill it in. We had to identify our needs and how we were going to how we were going to go about getting those to make sure that we could complete the the project in a timely way. And it is quite a difficult process because it makes you think about the PhD or the the professional doctorate as quite a quite a formulaic or quite a mechanical thing. Um, when really, when you go into a PhD, you go into it because you're really excited about the subject. You're really excited about what you're doing. You've got this brilliant research question. Um, but ultimately, when when you think about what a PhD is, I mean, the point is to come out the other side and you know change the initials on your your debit card and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. The the point of the PhD is to get the PhD. Um, so, what am I saying there? It, it's challenging to think about this in quite a mechanical way when you're really excited about it as a as a sort of a scholarly pursuit. But what it is is a time limited and resource limited project it's a it's a piece of project work you are the project manager you're the lead investigator on your own project um you've got a supervisor to supervise to guide to advise you've got structures around you and so when you're thinking about what what are my training needs what you're really thinking about is what are the what are the tools what are the materials what are the things that i need to get this project over the line so if you go into a phd like i did looking at leather objects in 18th century britain um you need to know how to analyze objects. You need to know about museum collection and handling procedures. You need to know about uh, a little bit about material science, I would say. Similarly, if you were doing a, a project on European law, you might need to know how to speak a bit of French. And if you don't know how to speak French, and that's a pretty big training need as well. So it's really about unpicking what it is you want to do and working out what are the things that you need to do uh, to get there. I'd also say that it's a really, it's a fantastic opportunity, really. And if you can approach it in that way with a with your bright-eyed and bushy-tailed <laughs> approach to the training needs analysis, which I know isn't really a thing, um, but you can pick up a lot of professional development opportunities. And there are people like me in most universities, as far as I know, most have got at least one because I get to go and speak to them at um at network meetings and that kind of thing. And we spend ages trying to work out what is something that people might might like or what is something that people might want to, to go to. And sometimes they're pretty, you know, they're pretty high value courses that you can get for free. So, you know, I'd say I'd say jump in both both feet first from that point of view as well. So um you said there that you actually sat down. Uh, it sounded like a pretty formal process, the training needs analysis. Um, I think at Bath, it's called like the research and development framework, um, which encourages you to, to think across all these different areas. Would you say it was definitely quite like a structured process of chatting through what you did and didn't know? It, it, so the researcher development framework uh, is, um, it's actually, it's, it's celebrating its 11th birthday this year. It was published in, in 2010. It was um, put out by uh, Vitae, who, who are a kind of national organization for doctoral development across the board. And then most of those individual um, sort of institutional forms and processes and and things are are based in some way on the research and development framework. So at East London, uh, we have the training needs analysis, uh, the TNA, some institutions call it the development needs analysis so that they can, you know, they can be very funny and call (laughs) it the DNA as well. Um, It can feel like a really formal process and 
I don't know whether that's I don't know whether that's to its benefit. I think it probably is because it it should be a kind of a concerted sit down and think about it. Um, but the fact that it's the fact that it might take a bit of time and that it should be relatively rigorous doesn't mean that it has to be boring, I suppose. So do do you know treat it as a serious thing because it is a serious thing. Um, but at the same time, it yeah think about the possibilities as well. You know you can leave this three four if you know part time longer as well. You can you can leave this process being not only you know the world leading expert in whatever your particular <laughs> whatever your particular field is. Although the value of being the leading expert in 18th century leather, I'm not I'm still not <laughs> no. I'm still not sure of. <laughs> believe I believe that there must be value there. I'm sure there is. But um, you can also leave it being a you know a fantastic networker, a brilliant presenter, a wonderful communicator, writer. You can have a string of blogs under your belt, or you can have all sorts of inroads into professional associations. And yeah, yeah, there's possibility there. It, it's a it's a it's a great thing, even if it does feel like a very bureaucratic one at times. There's so, there's so many different opportunities you rattled off there. Where can you go to find this sort of information? How can you find out what's out there, both locally and kind of um, wider across maybe whatever country or even internationally? So yeah, so much. So most institutions have got at least a a person. So if you're East London, um, there's your me, <laughs> and they might be based in a graduate school or they might be based in a doctoral college or um, a centre for doctoral studies or a centre for research students at some places. They might also be based in organisational development in HR. There are, there are various places where these people generally exist and although they aren't often huge, huge teams, they are there and they're, they're always really, really chipper and really smiley and really pleased to hear from people. And so if a PGR lands in your inbox and it's a hi I really want to yeah I really want to do this thing have you got anything or I'm looking to develop in a few areas here you know here are some of the things I'm interested in have you got anything that you could help me with I would say nine out of ten times I'm sure there might be one out of ten kind of cranky people but they'll say oh yeah there's a booking system online or there's a website or there's a whatever and then you can go on and there's invariably a a massive program of of things that you can you can go and take part in and that's at your own institution and as you say there's there's loads of other stuff there's linkedin learning uh, there's the i never know how to pronounce it the publisher elsevier or elsevier i know the one but i also don't know how to pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've got a research academy online with loads of resources there as well and then you can just browse have a google you know online free online course on networking and you'll come across a load of TED talks but you'll you'll probably come across a load of free online seminars these days as well I mean this is the silver lining of the pandemic that we've all taken to Zoom and Teams and Google Hangout I think it's called um, and I've taken part in some really fantastic workshops with people across the board in this time so the the catalogue really is getting quite quite rich and quite diverse now for sure maybe last question here is um more directed maybe at people that are kind of midway through their phd so training needs analysis and, and planning your training for the phd is obviously a fluid process but it's something you invest quite a lot of time in at the beginning as part of 
planning uh, your journey through the project. But what happens if you've kind of got halfway through and you maybe think, actually, you know, I've, I'm not sure that I spent enough time thinking about this. Do you have any advice for someone who's who's at that stage? I regularly compare um, writing a thesis or completing a doctoral research project. That's kind of like building building a house. And so you, you start and you've got this this idea for what the house could be and then you know you get the funding you get the approval that's your kind of your planning permission then you start the phd and you've got to get the plans signed off and that's your kind of your registration of the of the project and then you you know you get going on the research and you might have a at sheffield it was called a confirmation process at um, at uel it's called a transfer process but that bit where you go from being an mphil or a an early stage to a kind of a fully fledged doctoral candidate um, and that's really getting the kind of the blueprints signed off and that's when you can really start work and then from there you're just kind of you're building you're building up and all of that research activity represents putting bricks on top of one another and laying carpet and by the time you get to the end and you've got all of your you know all of your chapters which are your rooms in, in place and you're thinking about how do you present them and what furniture do you buy and put in? That's really when you're making the finishing touches around presentation. All of which is to say, and there is a point, um, that that plan can change at any time. Right? You can you can have the blueprint signed off and then you can you can start digging up the foundations and you can find something on the ground that means that you can't build a house there. I don't know. Um, but the plans change, and so the the materials and the tools that you might need might change along the way, and that's fine. But when it does happen, recognise, oh, there's something else I need here, and then really grasp the opportunity. So if all of a sudden you do need to access some French document, and you don't speak French, work out, I need to start learning learning French, and then go back to review that training need, and insert it into the plan, and talk to your supervisor, and talk to everybody that you can at the institution about how can you get skilled up relatively relatively rapidly in that that thing that you thing that you need but um if you need it you know we all want you to have a really lovely perfect house at the end of this process so do what you need to do to get to get the things you need uh, to be able to build it that is such a good analogy and actually it made me think of like an episode of grand designs where he comes back three months later and they've gone way over budget <laughs> and he's suddenly like i think you really need to reconsider your project plan. <laughs> um but also i think it really highlights that a training plan and a and a analysis of where you're at shouldn't be filed away in, in a drawer it shouldn't be lost in some kind of obscure folder on your desktop and actually it should probably be something which you whip out quite regularly and think you know am i where i want to be can i get rid of something actually was i able to do something that i thought i couldn't do um and actually more of like a living document than it is something which just gets done at one point in time absolutely and that, and that's all part of you know grasping it as a positive as a positive thing you know there are we do ask you to complete these things and when i was when i was a phd student and the you know, the request came through in the inbox, you know, make sure that you update your supervision meeting notes. And I sort of, you know, cast them aside, like, no, I'm far too busy. Don't <laughs> don't bother me with these things. They do, they do, I realize I realise now I've had an epiphany, you know, that they um they do have positive implications. They do have, you know, good intentions behind them as well. But the training needs analysis, that's one that that really can be a, a force for good for you. Oh, amazing, Tom. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. Any words of wisdom before we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, build. Yeah, building a house is a is a difficult thing, but you know, even 
even people building houses need need time off as well. And so I think reflecting on where we're at at the moment with with doctoral studies, um, spending time to do the things that you like doing is as much a part of you as, as spending time working on the project as well. So I said at the beginning of this conversation, it's a time and resource limited project. And that means that there is time where you, you know, you go out and you go for a run or you do whatever it is. You, you watch grand designs. Right? That's, <laughs> and that's as much a, a part of what this should be about. So, yeah, I hope that everybody, everybody listening is, is safe and well at the, the present time as well. Massive thank you to Ian, Marva and Tom for coming along to today's episode, um, sharing all of their experiences and tips about goal setting and organisation and training during the PhD. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Do be sure to check out the other episodes we've released down below on whatever streaming service you're listening to.